The dirty little secret in the legal profession is that the same problems that affect other industries are systemic within the legal profession. The ABA had a recent study, and we cite this study in our complaint, which notes that approximately 44-45% of law firm associates are females, and yet only 18% are equity partners. Happily, the Lilly Ledbetter case was one of the few that Congress has been able to address in fixing a bad decision in terms of employment, um, a ridiculous decision, which you know said that Lilly Ledbetter should have known that you know 30 odd years before that she was being discriminated against right from the beginning. Uh, otherwise, she had to file her complaint within 180 days. A ridiculous ruling, but reflective of the fact that we have had a court system that's fairly hostile, particularly to gender and race discrimination claims. I believe it is high time that all of us, as men and women of good conscience, just ask ourselves, what are we going to do about this problem? It's not as if the problem doesn't exist. There is absolute informed unanimity that there is a serious gender pay equity problem in big law. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. I also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. And before we introduce today's topic, we would like to just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. You can learn more about Clio at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And Craig, we missed seeing you at uh, Clio's conference last week up in Chicago. It was a good time. I'm glad you had a good time, Bob. I was watching some of your broadcasts. Well, across the country, women have been filing class action lawsuits over a male-dominated culture and alleged gender discrimination within the walls of their law firms. Recently, attorney Kerry Campbell from Chadbourne and Park filed a $100 million class action lawsuit against the firm on behalf of current and former female partners alleging gender discrimination. In her complaint, Campbell alleges the firm was managed by an all-male five-member management committee that routinely discriminated against her and other women and that her compensation consistently fell below male counterparts. In response to the suit, Chad Borden and Park has uh, stated in the news media, quote, Ms. Campbell's complaint against the firm is riddled with falsehoods and once the facts are fully presented, the firm is confident that her allegations will be shown to be completely baseless. Well, Bob, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take an overall look at gender discrimination in the workplace in addition to this particular lawsuit. We're going to be discussing litigation, debate over pay practices and other elements, the difficulty of proving gender discrimination, recent legislation, and what the future looks like for equality for women in the workplace. And to do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. First, we have attorney David Sanford. He is chairman and co-founder of Sanford Heisler, LLP, 
David was the lead counsel representing approximately 7,000 female employees in Velez versus Novartis. After a seven-week trial, Mr. Sanford secured the largest employment verdict in United States history. David is currently representing attorney Carrie Campbell in her gender discrimination class action lawsuit. Welcome to the show, David. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. And next we have attorney Carrie Campbell, the plaintiff in the lawsuit against Chad Borden and Parks she is uh, a partner, I, I think right now called a partner in transition, but she can explain that to us in Chad Burden Parks Litigation Department in its Washington, D.C. office. Over a 27-year career, Carrie Campbell has built a practice focused on all aspects of consumer product safety, risk management, regulatory compliance, and related litigation, and on reputation protection, defamation, libel, product disparagement, and First Amendment issues in litigation. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Carrie Campbell. Thank you. I'm very grateful to be part of the conversation. And our final guest today is attorney Caroline Fredrickson. She's the president of American Constitutional Society. Before joining ACS, Caroline serves as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and as general counsel and legal director of NARAL Pro-Choice America. During the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs. Caroline is also the author of Under the Bus, How Working Women Are Being Run Over, from the New Press, published last year. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thanks so much for having me. Carrie Campbell, I wonder if we could just start with you. There's the uh, lawsuit that you filed last month, I think it was last month in, in uh, August, uh, you filed a $100 million class action complaint alleging that the firm is run by basically an all-male dictatorship that pays women partners less and provides them fewer leadership opportunities than men. Can you give us the background and what led you to file this lawsuit? I can try to do that, sure. I joined Chad Bourne after a fairly lengthy and thoughtful process of about 10 months of conversations with Chad Bourne leadership and the management committee and various partners to um, move my practice to be able to grow it and market it and develop a brand that's got a national strength and that a law firm with an international capacity and a good litigation support bench could support. And I, of course, um, made that decision very carefully and after trying to gather as much information as possible and didn't take it lightly at all because those of us who have been in law practices, I'm sure recognize that it's a very complex process to move one's practice from one firm to another and transition all of your clients and all of your matters to a new firm. So it's certainly not something to be taken lightly. And I felt like after extensive discussion that I had all the assurances that I was looking for and made the decision to accept Chad Warren's offer to become an equity partner. That was the good part. (laughs) All right. So, unfortunately... That was in 2014. uh, That was January of 2014. And um, I'm afraid that things turned out to be much different than what I had been told to expect. And I would say some rather shocking um, cultural differences that I was not accustomed to came apparent very quickly. So although I had been assured and told that this was a culture of great transparency and open communication and dialogue, what I saw very quickly was that there was a 
distinct lack of transparency, that there was almost a pall over discussion, and it became very obvious that any kind of uh, conversation or effort to change things or have something different than the way it was before or to ask questions about practices or decisions made by the five-member management committee was very, very frowned upon. So that became clear fairly quickly and um, not too long after I had been there. Of course, I was very, very busy working to serve my clients and doing all the things that you do to transition a practice and to integrate into a firm. At the same time, that first year, before the first year was over, information came out, which uh, I guess is part of the firm's process, and it came to my attention that I was at the very bottom of the point system, which translates to putting you at the bottom of the compensation system, and that was quite a shock indeed. And I certainly made significant efforts to have productive conversations with management and with the managing partner, Mr. Giaccia, and with others in my office to address those concerns, to raise the concerns and ask questions about how things were the way they were, and that didn't go well. And I think the allegations and the complaint really do speak to the experience of retaliation and the conduct, the backlash that I experienced as a result of raising what are, I think, very, very important, reasonable and valid questions that need to be addressed. Well, Caroline, let's take a step back from this very specific instance and and talk about the generalities of workplace gender discrimination in the workplace. Can you give us a rough and tumble history of how this is this whole thing has come into being? Well, you know, I think it's it's always been, unfortunately. Um, however, there are some interesting issues about how the law has developed around. You know, once there was a broader recognition that gender discrimination should be uh, illegal, even then, when the laws were being crafted. Uh, many women uh, ended up getting left out. And my book, Under the Bus, um, tends to focus more on low-wage women and women of color particularly because they were the ones who were most subject to the exclusions. You know, in the laws that don't necessarily apply so much to the legal community, um, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is minimum wage and overtime, as well as the National Labor Relations Act, which is the right to organize. And those laws had broad exemptions that were created to ensure that the southern plantation owners could continue to have a largely African-American and very female population work for them without having to pay them minimum wage or overtime, without allowing them to join a union. Very explicit conversation. It's in the congressional record. It's, it's, um, it shouldn't actually be that shocking. It was a long time ago, but nonetheless, it's still shocking to read, although certain conversations recently may seem more close in time than we'd like to think. But still, so lawyers haven't so much been affected by that, but there has been, there were a whole other set of statutes that were more directly focused on sex discrimination, um, including Title VII and other protections for workers that have excluded smaller businesses. This can often have an impact on law firms so that the anti-discrimination laws don't apply to companies with fewer than 15 employees. Um, and this has deprived a lot of workers with a very important tool unless their state or locality has a stronger protection. And and although, you know, I think we often think of these smaller business exclusions as things that were meant to carve out small businesses because somehow they're somehow very different. Um, it was actually really specifically very 
race focus. Um, and again, there was this conversation about some of the lawyers may be familiar with the uh, Mrs. Murphy's exception in the Fair Housing Act. It's a similar kind of a expression of racism that has, you know, affected women quite a bit because they were caught up in the same exclusion. But very, again, very directly, the conversation went to why it is that people don't, white people primarily, shouldn't have to hire people of a different race to work with them in a smaller uh, environment. So I think what happens is that um, the tools that we have are very weak, and I think we can get into a lot of the issues that um, the people who are litigating cases, which I haven't done for a while, you know, know full well, which is that the tools of litigation are quite weak for people who've been victims of discrimination. You know, the, the pleading standards have been uh, made so much uh, harder. The class action tool is, is much limited, uh, more limited in, in, um, in its ability to be used. Arbitration, forced arbitration being put in employment contracts. Now, this is something where I think women, you know, have been particularly affected. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, will, it's a very important uh, issue for people to talk about. The way that um, arbitration and forced arbitration agreements have been used to hollow out our anti-discrimination protections because much litigation is now focused on whether the arbitration clause is actually enforceable or not, um, rather than going right to the heart of whether um, the women have been paid less or have not been, uh, you know, have been put at the, at the end of the list in terms of the equity partners, as, as we've just been discussing. David Campbell, I wanted to ask you, this particular lawsuit with Kerry Campbell against Chadbourne and Park has drawn on a lot of attention. It's been written up in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the National Law Journal and any number of other media outlets. Do you think that there's an element of surprise among uh, some sectors that employment discrimination can exist in an institution such as Chadbourne and Park, or is it pervasive across institutions of all levels? It's certainly pervasive across institutions at all levels. We have many cases that we are litigating and have litigated on behalf of women across the country. We have a, a gender discrimination case that is conditionally certified against KPMG, one against Merck Pharmaceuticals, uh, others against other pharmaceutical companies. The dirty little secret in the legal profession is that the same problems that affect other industries are systemic within the legal profession. The ABA had a recent study, and we cite this study in our complaint, which notes that approximately 44-45% of law firm associates are females, and yet only 18% are equity partners who are females. And there's a 2015 uh, survey by the National Association of Women Lawyers, which notes that uh, female equity partners earn about 80% of what a typical male equity partner earns. So the median compensation for an equity partner for females is about $500,000, and for males, it's about $630,000. That's a big difference per year. It's about 125000 $130,000 a year, uh, and that represents about 25% of the median female partner salary. So over a 20-year career, if you were to average that out, you're looking at about a $2.5, $3 million difference. Uh, with interest, it's undoubtedly much more than that. At Chadbourne in particular, you have 20 non-partner uh, attorneys who left the firm in 2015. 85%, approximately 85%, are female, 17 out of the 20. Why is that? What is really happening here? Carrie Campbell uh, talks about, uh, as she did moments ago, being in the bottom of the point system, which means that she's towards the bottom of the compensation system. And yet her originations were high relative to her male peers who made a lot more money. Why is that? 
And uh, firms, law firms in general, are able to get away with this because they have what I would call a black box system. There's a lack of transparency, as Carrie mentioned, and people really don't know how these decisions are made. But what we do know is that, at least in Chadbourne's case, it's made by five males, it's made in secret, and people really don't have access to a lot of the information that that committee uses to determine points and compensation. They don't have access to the kinds of considerations that go into assigning points and thus compensation. And as a result of that veil of being within that veil of ignorance, people don't speak out. Carrie Campbell uh, had the courage to step forward, to speak out, to challenge that system. And that's what our lawsuit is all about. Well, do we know if it's systemic? There was a, 14 of the partners at Chadbourne, uh, 14 female partners at Chadbourne Park wrote a letter to you, uh, I guess, asking to be disassociated with the lawsuit. I, I don't know whether they were associated in the first place, but asking to be disassociated from the lawsuit. It, does that suggest that perhaps this wasn't a systemic issue at the firm? Well, David, let me interrupt for a second just before we answer that question. We need to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back to the answer to that question after the message. Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best to practice law. Learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Sorry, we had to just take that break. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and joining uh, J. Craig Williams and I today are David Sanford, lawyer representing Kerry Campbell, partner at Chadbourne and Parks Litigation Department, who is uh, suing them for discrimination. And also we have Carolyn Fredrickson, president of the American Constitution Society. And uh, David, we just <laughs> just asked you a question. I, I wasn't sure. I, I think I might have also heard Kerry speaking up there. But uh, do you want to either you want to address that issue? Well, I'm happy to, to address it first if I could. I, I don't think that's the case. Whether or not the discrimination is systemic across the firm rests on a review of the numbers. Either there is a disparity between the way in which female partners are paid versus men, or there's not. If there is, and if that disparity is viewed as being statistically significant by a labor economist, then the firm is going to have to explain why there is that statistical significance in compensation. They're going to have to explain it by reference to a non-discriminatory reason. And I don't believe they're going to be able to do that. So that's first of all. Second, with respect to the 14 individuals who signed on the letter, I think they signed based on a misunderstanding of what class actions are about. I don't pretend to speak for each and every one of them. This is an issue bigger than any one person. It really is about a system of compensation. That's what the case is about. If any individual does not want to participate in the case, she can opt herself out of the Equal Pay Act portion of the case. That is to say, not opt in at all. Or she can opt out of the Title VII Rule 23 portion of the case. So they may have understood that they were being forced into something they would rather not participate in, and that's not the case. They have absolute, complete autonomy and independence to make decisions for themselves, and I completely and Carrie completely respects any decisions 
they may make. I can tell you, just as a corollary to all of that, there are other people who feel very strongly that what Carrie did is the right thing to do. People who are female partners, people who are former partners at Chadbourne, people who are associates uh, at Chadbourne and former associates, there's a lot of goodwill and support for her that we have not publicized, but that I hope will uh, become obvious as the litigation progresses. Well, Caroline, as you listen to this, uh, you have a definite knowledge about how difficult it is to prove gender discrimination. Tell us about those hurdles and, and what Carrie's going to be looking at as she goes down the road in this case. Well, I mean, I th- there are a lot of hurdles. I think that certainly the, the deck is, is stacked against plaintiffs generally, uh, but employment discrimination, I think, is particularly hard because some of the things that I've mentioned, there, uh, the way that the courts themselves have helped um, raise the bar and making it more difficult through, um, you know, with the pleading standards. If you look at the Lily Ledbetter case and think about how the court had interpreted the EEO language, how much time she had to complain, and happily, the Lily Ledbetter case was one of the few that Congress has been able to address in fixing a bad decision uh, in terms of employment, um, a ridiculous decision, which, you know, said that Lily Ledbetter should have known that, you know, 30-odd years before that she was being discriminated against right from the beginning. Uh, Otherwise, she uh, had to file her complaint within 180 days. You know, a ridiculous ruling, but reflective of the fact that we have had a court system that's fairly hostile, particularly to gender uh, and race discrimination claims. And so, you know, you can go through the whole list of, you know, the Iqbal Twombly decisions with pleading standards that, you know, essentially make it so that victims of discrimination should know everything about why they're being discriminated against before they can even file their case. Um, and again, that I think class action mechanism, which has been very much limited for women to be able to join together and put their claims together, you know, for, for lawyers, it's a little bit different because an individual claim is, you know, more meaningful in terms of its value that pursuing a small group case or an individual case maybe um, something that can go forward. But for, for many women who are victims of, of gender discrimination, it's not worth a lawyer's time and they can't afford to pay somebody uh, unless it's a class action. Um, and so, you know, those are just a few of the barriers, uh, but uh, the evidentiary burdens and so forth, I think, you know, are tough. And I think the law firms being as secretive as we, as we know they are, um, it's very hard. And I think, you know, the other piece that has been touched on is I think it's hard. It's really hard for lawyers, and it's hard for the other women at the firm to necessarily put themselves out there. You worry about, you know, whether you're going to go to another firm, whether you're going to be able to attract business. You become, to a certain extent, notorious for having demanded fair treatment. Um, I think that women are, you know, often, they don't benefit from speaking out. It's not necessarily seen as a great advantage to have a strong-minded woman and so I think that all those things together mean that, um, you know, I admire people like Gary for being brave and doing something that's important for all women, for all women lawyers, certainly. And, you know, I think we can look at the evidence. You know, I can't speak to the individual case, but the evidence of, you know, how women are graduating from law school in higher numbers than men are doing extremely well, and they're just not making it into the partner positions. And they're certainly not making it into top equity partner positions. And, you know, I can't say that all of that's discrimination. Some of it is the structural issues that I think, you know, are somewhat attributable to discrimination that dealing with, you know, how able people are to combine uh, life outside the law firm with law firm work. But, you know, there's a lot of discrimination. It's the only way to explain those numbers. Uh, Carolyn, I must say that I, I disagree 
uh, strongly with the undercurrent of what you just said. Carolyn uh, listed a parade of horribles that she thinks is a part of these cases. And let me just give you another side, if I might. We uh, have been involved and are involved in litigation throughout the United States on a regular basis. And much of that litigation involves gender discrimination. Right now, for example, we have cases certified by courts uh, in gender discrimination matters against Merck, against Forest Pharmaceuticals, against KPMG. We have settlement, class-wide settlements against Qualcomm, Alcon, Daiichi. We had the Novartis trial and the success at trial after six years of litigation. We recently had a settlement, class-wide settlement against Publicis. My experience doing this just does not reflect what Carolyn said. Sure, there are issues in litigation. Sure, people have concerns. They always have concerns. But I have represented so many women who have expressed those concerns. It's a natural thing to ask about. They do the litigation, and then they, to a person, wind up better off on the other end. They wind up maybe doing something oh, they didn't I envision don't doing. Want to disagree but they're with much you on that. I- I don't mean to say that it's not possible to win, and I admire you, and I think it's great what you're doing. I'm just saying I think it could – it has gotten somewhat harder, but great lawyers with good cases can certainly – and I encourage women who who feel like they're victims to to go forward. I think we need more, and I think the more cases, the more we make the case that these cases need to be treated fairly. I don't want to say that it's not – I don't want to discourage people from coming forward. If that's the impression I left, I hope I hope I didn't. Does it say anything that so many of these cases have to go to litigation uh, and are not able to be dealt with in a fair way within the workplace, whether it's a big law firm or a big company or a small mom and pop shop somewhere? When women raise concerns about their treatment and and their pay equity and their involvement uh, in management. Carrie, what was your experience here when you first raised these concerns? Was there any willingness to kind of discuss or try and address them in any way? I would share with you that the response was utter dismissal, utter dismissal. And there are a few points that I want to follow up on um, that Carolyn had talked about. And when we talk about gender pay disparity, the fact of the matter, it's an uncontested fact based on data compiled by the ABA and other organizations that the odd thing here is that the legal profession is the worst profession in the United States in terms of gender inequality. There is no worse profession in the United States. And this strikes me as a serious character problem, to put it one way. Here we are, highly trained professionals who've gone to excellent educational institutions, and we have dedicated our lives to justice and equity and fairness and truth. And it is in our own profession where we have the worst offenders in terms of gender inequality, pay, power, promotion. So, I believe it is high time that all of us, as men and women of good conscience, just ask ourselves, what are we going to do about this problem? It's not as if the problem doesn't exist. There is absolute, I would say, informed unanimity that there is a serious gender pay equity problem in big law, period. No one disagrees with that. Yet, 
when someone raises the issue, we have sort of this knee-jerk response of sticking the head in the sand or pretending that it doesn't exist or wanting to sweep it under the rug. Or, frankly, I think a lot of women have simply gone on to something different or been treated unfairly and gone on to the next thing because they didn't feel like they could do anything about it or that they were fighting City Hall or that there were all of these other other potential consequences for taking a stand. What I'm saying in 2016 is it is time for all men and women of good conscience to say enough is enough. This doesn't make sense. We're not going to let it happen. And personally, I had to go through a process of deciding what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? And I decided for myself and for all the women who couldn't or wouldn't, and for my children who are grown in entering into the professional world, and for David's two-year-old daughter, we have to do something. We have to force law firms, law firm management to come to grips with this problem, look it square in the face, and say we're going to do something about it. And when they don't, when they refuse to do that, when they dismiss you and they demean you, then they need to be held accountable legally in a court of law. And that is what we're doing. And I am convinced, I am convinced based on all that we've heard since this lawsuit was filed, and we did not file it lightly. I'm sure you can understand that. I am convinced we have only scratched the surface of the depth of the seriousness of the gender inequality and discrimination that is occurring and has occurred at Chadbourne specifically, and hopefully this action will put an end to that at Chadbourne and also have a positive impact in the legal profession overall. And I will venture a guess, and maybe David is better equipped to address this, but I will venture a guess that by filing this lawsuit, women are already going to do better and already are going to be given better treatment, maybe some titles they wouldn't have been given. Perhaps they will get better bonuses at this year end. Won't it be interesting to see? All of that is good. And all of that is not going to happen unless someone comes forward to say, enough is enough. We need to end this now. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and contact information. David, let's start with you. I'm David Sanford, chairman of my firm, uh, Sanford Heisler. We have offices in Washington, D.C., New York City, San Francisco, and San Diego. And your final thoughts? My final thoughts couldn't possibly do better than what Carrie just said so eloquently, so I think I'll leave it with her. Excellent. Thank you. Caroline, let's turn to you. Caroline Fredrickson, president of the American Constitution Society. We're based in Washington, and people can find us on the internet at acslaw.org. And I would reiterate, I think um, Carrie summed it up very well. I think it's really important for people to raise the issue and to fight, to fight hard. There's so much work to be done to ensure that there's fair pay in the legal profession, and it's a sad fact that we're not leading the way, that we're, in fact, um, at the end of the line. Thank you. And Carrie? How can our listeners reach out to you? And you can, again, sum up with your final thoughts. Well, thank you. First, let me say that I am delighted and grateful to be part of this conversation. And I want to make a suggestion and a challenge to everyone who has any interest in this issue or who is involved in any way with gender 
issues, I want to suggest and challenge people that when something like this comes up, you can't be neutral. You can't stick your head in the sand and you can't say, it's not a problem, it's not my problem, I just want it to go away. People have to make a decision that they're either going to address the problem and fix it or they're part of the problem. And that's where I am on this issue after 30 years. I'm going on 30 years of building a career in this profession that I find noble and that I love. We have a lot of work to do, and it's time for everybody to get up and get going on this issue. Well, thank you very much to everybody for taking the time to discuss this with us. It's really been interesting. We appreciate your time, and I appreciate your thoughts on this. That brings us to the end of our show. This is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.